Those of you I haven't had the privilege to meet or interact with, my name is Jamie, I have the privilege of serving here as a pastor at Harvest Church. And just so you know how insecure I still am, every time the offering is taken up, I want to tap the people next to me and say, I give online. Right? <laughs> Don't judge me. Okay, so uh, a few things to make you aware of this morning, uh, just by way of announcement. Three, quickly, the gospel journey. So it's sort of our in-house discipleship tool. Uh, If you're not currently in a gospel journey group or don't even know what that is, there's more information in your bulletin, but we do encourage you to invite someone on the gospel journey with you. This is Pathway 7. It begins next Sunday. It'll be over the books of Ephesians and 1 Timothy. And if you're leading a group or want to lead a group, there's a luncheon this coming Wednesday uh, to get a familiar or more familiar with the gospel journey and the content of what will be taught through this semester. Uh, More information in your bulletin on that. Uh, Also, incidentally, this Wednesday is also the date if you're a leader in the women's Bible study to get leadership training. There's both a morning and evening option available for the women Bible study leaders as well. Secondly, secondly, Family Discipleship Day. Parents of children uh, from K through 12 uh, come to the fellowship hall at 1045 on January 21st. Okay, I'll repeat that, 1045 on January 21st. It's all parents of K through 12. We'll learn better how to partner with each other and with the church to serve and equip our families in discipling our kids. And then lastly, women's Bible study kicks off at the beginning of February. You can sign up starting today all the way through January 28th. And again, more information is available in your bulletin. Uh, that said... Uh, the last thing, so we got we to gotta clear a little bit out of the way this morning by way of introduction before we get to the real content of the sermon. Uh, and so that begins by acknowledging that this is Martin Luther King weekend. Uh, tomorrow will be observation of Martin Luther King Day. And so it's always third Monday uh, in January, uh, centering around his birthday. And this is Specifically, a significant year for us in our city, uh, being located in Memphis, the place of his tragic assassination, as this marks 50 years uh, since Dr. King was assassinated this coming April. And, and being in between sermons here at Harvest and knowing that it is our heart uh, uh, to see diversity and pursue diversity, I, it seemed uh, missing out on an opportunity to not take what is a natural rhythm of our nation's calendar and bring that into the church this morning. And so we will be talking about some things that, uh, that are quite difficult. In fact, they're quite uneasy, and I'll mention more about that in a second. But if you've never been, all right, so if you've been in Memphis or new to Memphis, uh, if you've never been downtown to the Civil Rights Museum, uh, you are missing an opportunity uh, to come face to face with what's not easy to stomach, but some real tragic components of not just American history, but our Southern American history. Uh, I would say, um, as a white person, it's not a a particularly fun place to visit. Uh, um, It's intense, um, but it can't be ignored. And so I would encourage anyone that hasn't been and received what would be a a blessing, albeit a difficult one, I would urge you in that direction uh, uh, here in the near future. Okay, lastly, as it relates to Martin Luther King Day, and this segues into our sermon this morning, uh, so my first stint in Memphis, moved here in August of 08, and then my wife Shannon and I 
we left and I took a pastorate in Austin in June of 13. So we had a, about a five-year initial stint in Memphis. And it was either sometime in the spring of 2009 or 2010. I can't remember accurately, but, uh, but I, I vividly remember it being a Martin Luther King Day weekend and this idea coming into my mind. Now, to be candid, as a white person, I wasn't sure if it was a great idea or terrible idea. But what I knew is I probably wasn't going get, to get a lot of help by asking another white person about it. And so I went to an African-American pastor in the city uh, who I knew and trusted, and I figured it could be a safe place to run my idea past him to get an African-American perspective on what I was thinking. Uh, because I knew the idea was either really good or unbelievably horrific. And so this was a good, safe place to, to throw some things against the wall to see what would stick. So I went in, sat down, uh, and I said, okay, look, I've got an idea, and I need you to be compassionate towards me, but also honest with me. I said, so here's what it is. And so all this, uh, so, so being a Southerner, racial tension is not foreign to me. I've grown up in it, lived in it. Those of you that are, are Southerners for many years, you know it. It's real, it's palpable. Uh, and said, I said, so, so that being on my heart and mind, I said, here, here, here's my idea, is that what if, what if I could organize uh, a march on Martin Luther King Day, right? So, so capture what is traditionally an African-American medium for protest, uh, one, one used by Dr. King to bring attention to uh, the sin, uh, right, that, that, that was embedded in the, in the lack of civil rights for African-Americans during that time. Uh, what if I could mobilize just like a thousand white people to march in downtown Memphis on Martin Luther King Day to end the march at the Lorraine Motel wearing nothing but shirts or having signs that say, we're sorry, please forgive me. And I said that out loud and the pastor sat back in his chair and I was sitting there thinking like, yep, I did it. Church discipline is forthcoming next weekend. This is an awful idea. And to my surprise, he said, Jamie, I actually really like the redemptive image. But, and what he said next radically shaped me moving forward. He said, but what you're not understanding is that the African-American community is not as interested in forgiveness as it is repentance. And I sat there for a second, and for the first time, okay, okay, admittedly, for the first time, it dawned on me that there was still, even in the 2000s, a massive gap in repentance, that it still was a huge area of inadequacy in majority culture from the perspective of this African-American pastor, who I think had a pretty good pulse on a segment of our society that I'm simply not as familiar with. And that idea, right, this idea of that there was this gap or there was this inadequacy of repentance has always stuck with me. And so that kind of colliding with what is the calendar of our country have come together to drive what I'm going to try to do this morning, and I'm going to situate it as best I can in the text of Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. Now, before we stand and read it, here's a disclaimer. This is not our, our usual uh, exposition of Scripture. I want to be very clear of that. 
I'm going to read Daniel 9. I'm going to try my best briefly to situate it in its historical context, but I am not, hear me, for you biblicists out there that are going to get really mad at me, I am not unpacking Daniel 9, 3 through 9 by saying the way I take it this morning is the exact interpretation or application of it. I am taking Daniel 9, 3 through 9, and I think fairly and biblically drawing principles from it. And I think operating principles that if I would align them into my own rhythms of living would make me a more godly and sensitive person. So that said, Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 9, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and rebelled. We've turned aside from you, your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants of prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God, verse 9, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Daniel 9, verses 3 through 9. Those are the words of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be God. You can be seated. Okay, so let's walk, verses 3 through 9, and then let's, let's come back and really spend the bulk of our time unpacking what can we learn as far as a way to move forward as, as a normal operating system, hopefully, for us as a people from verse 6 alone. Okay, so three through nine to begin with. Look at it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Look, that, that verse, uh, uh, to oversimplify it, this is, this is Daniel's posture. Okay, so he begins his prayer, not verbally, but by posturing himself. And, and, and the posture Daniel takes, so fasting, sackcloth and ashes, turning his face to heaven, Daniel's posture signifies the weight of the prayer that is to follow. Okay, and it's this principle of posturing that I want to take upon myself this morning before you and just be really honest. I am rarely, rarely, and look, this is not a statement of arrogance or trying to thump my chest. I'm just rarely uh, ever nervous to preach. I hope I always feel the weight of preaching. Uh, that's not true this morning. I'm nervous. I'm uneasy. It's, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I know that this morning I'm being recorded and being videoed and looking at you knowing something may be unintentionally offensive. I'm preaching on something this morning that is not done for effect, it's not done for shock, in no way is it politically motivated. It's honest, it's sincere, and it's imperfect. 
So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking as much as you are willing to be gracious with me. I'm asking as much as you are willing to give me the benefit of the doubt in both motive and content. And lastly, as I try to take this idea of posturing from Daniel 9 and posture myself before you, lastly, what I'm asking is for you to fight against the idea that none of this applies to you. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel's posture before the Lord. No, look where he moves. Look where he moves. Verse four. Okay, so verse four is a movement in the prayer. So we've gone from posture to now he's going to start verbally articulating something and look at it with me. I prayed to the Lord. So we've moved posture uh, to, 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 to speak and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying this, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. So from three to four, we see a movement to confession, but not just confession. Look what Daniel does. Daniel's confession is with the character of God in view. And I want to pause to say that is good news this morning. Daniel is confessing to a God that he knows is faithful to his people. And what Daniel highlights is God's steadfast, enduring, unwavering, unconditional covenant love which Daniel knows everything that he's about to confess will not be a means by which God will reject him or reject his people because God is faithful to hear their cries and hear their confession, amen? Look, even just step out of what we're talking about corporately and step into your own life personally, is that not good news? That you can approach God with a confession with the character of God in view. It's unbelievable. Now he moves from this general idea of confession and he starts to move into some particulars of what he's confessing. Verse five, we've sinned and done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel, if you'll notice, is using a pronoun there that's plural possessive. He is not saying they've done this. They've done that. He's saying we. Right, so verse five, in real time, Daniel is saying, God, they're guilty and I'm guilty, which let us know that Daniel's prayer is not coming from a perspective of self-righteousness. Daniel's prayer is not a prayer down towards someone or about someone else. Daniel's prayer is a God forgive us. This is what we have done. And even though Daniel is seen as this pillar of how to, how to live and operate faithfully amidst a pagan and, and, and oppositional culture, Daniel still knows that he is equal with everyone else at the foot of the cross. Because all of us are equally lost, which allows us to all be equally saved. Okay, and I just wanna let you know this morning that I, uh, as best I can by God's grace and tone, uh, I am trying to emulate like Daniel wants you to know that I'm not coming from a self-righteous perspective. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I can ashamedly admit that I am not innocent when it comes to having a prejudiced thought, to having a bias, to making blanket statements or blanket judgments based on appearance. Uh, 
And I wonder if we all didn't really let our guard down and say, Holy Spirit, go to work, if we couldn't say the same thing. Okay, so, so please hear me. Uh, this is not me up on stage preaching down to you. Uh, if anything, it's me saying, uh, I've been there. I get attacked with sin in this area just like everyone else. And so what would qualify me, a 34-year-old, to preach uh, on such a difficult topic to a diverse group of people in both age, race, sociodemographics? Let me tell you something. Nothing qualifies me to talk about any of this save one thing. I am a sinner in need of grace. That's it. My only qualification this morning is a failure to fully step into the areas that we'll be discussing. Okay, so Daniel knows that he is not immune to the sins of the people. But then, watch, this, is, this is what's... So, so verse six, I think, at least for our purposes, is the most pivotal verse in the passage. And what Daniel does is it, it, it truly, it's fascinating to me. Right, so he moves from, from this initial introduction of, of yes, we've sinned, yes, I've joined, but he moves to verse six and look what he starts to bring up. All right, look at, at the vastness to which his repentance extends. It says this, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke, past tense. Watch this now. In your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse six has the history of Israel in view. Now here's what's fascinating about that to me. Do you know who historically considered it would have been impossible to be there for all of this? Daniel. He couldn't have been. It is historically impossible for Daniel to have been present in all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel's history of disobeying God. It's fascinating, isn't it? That here's one man living in Babylon, repenting to God for things that he could have never historically have taken part in. And yet he brings before the Lord this confession, we have not listened and look at the breadth that the failure to listen applies to our kings didn't listen to your prophets our princes didn't listen to your prophets our families didn't listen to your prophets and we personally didn't listen to your prophets and he's bringing this confession of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel's history before God Okay, in verses seven and eight, this is what Daniel feels in response to that reality. Look at it with me. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us, open shame. Daniel is saying, it is a shameful thing to look back on our history and see the ways in which we departed from God. As at this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, uh, who, 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 those who are near, those who are far, in all the lands in which you've driven them because of the treachery they've committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, 
because we've sinned against you. Now, there is a narrative in our preaching of the gospel of grace that is true, but and that narrative goes like this, that Jesus came to take away your guilt and take away your shame, amen? But yet we're reading a passage that talks about feeling guilt and feeling shame. And so we need to nuance this a little bit by saying, even though Christ ultimately has taken our shame upon him, right, the guilt, the condemnation, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, amen? Here's what's problematic, is when what's ultimately true is approximated by being practically true in this way, if you take the posture of saying you should never feel guilt and shame for anything that you do, that actually isn't biblically true. My sin right now should grieve me. I should feel it. Paul would actually write to the church at Corinth, there is a grief, a shame, a guilt, depending on your translation, that leads to godliness. So what the Bible actually would say is when operating properly, I sin, I feel the weight and shame of sinning against a God that's loved me so much. And when operating properly, that's actually what catalyzes me running back to the cross. It actually builds and brings me to godliness. Why? Because our sin, the reality of it, always brings into sharpening focus our unbelievable uh, need for continued grace. Amen? Our desperate need for it. And so that feeling when we sin uh, of guilt and shame against God, yes, are we to ultimately live in that? No. But is that supposed to be a spark and catalyst to throw ourselves back at the feet of the cross and confess with the compassion of God's character in view? It absolutely is. And when done properly, verse nine, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Our sin brings God's mercy and forgiveness in view. Okay, so here we have Daniel posturing himself, proclaiming his own guilt, stepping into this idea that, that not only am I guilty, but we're all guilty, but we're not just guilty today. In fact, Daniel says, God, as I look back over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the history of our people, we've been guilty. And he brings a confession before the Lord. Okay, in verse six is where I want to draw our attention this morning. And here is part of what Daniel confesses, hear me now, as sin. Here's part of what he confesses as sin. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Okay, now contextually, Daniel is uh, he is referring to the Old Testament prophets, the messenger sent directly from God, carrying the words of God with the authority of God. Okay, that is contextually what's happening. Now, I'm stepping out of the immediate context to simply draw a principle. And that is, principally, there still is a sin of not listening. Now, it may not be coming from someone who is biblically deemed or easily recognizable as a prophet. And may, look, whatever our thoughts are on that era of theology today, maybe there aren't even prophets that still speak in the same way as they did in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean there aren't words to be listened to. And at times, a failure to listen is, hear me now, sin. It's part of our confession. It's not just that we failed to act. It's that we failed to listen. 
Okay, now what I'm about to really dive into, I promise you, is uncomfortable for me and equally uncomfortable for you. Uh, okay, so, so in our Southern American history, if we narrow that in even, even a little bit more, in our Southern American Christian history, there are some deep, deep scars there are some things that are incredibly tragic. There is striking evidence of a failure to listen. And one of the voices that we need to listen to from the past comes from, honestly, one of my favorite short reads um, from Frederick Douglass's Narrative of an American Slave. What I'm about to read is explicit, it is striking, and it is uneasy. But that doesn't make it untrue. And do I think every church that existed during this time was like this? No, probably every church wasn't. But that doesn't nullify the fact that there were churches that did example what I'm about to read. And so if they could put it up on the, on the screen, it's a long quote and just track with me as I go through it. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. This has the American South in view. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields a blood-clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave's auctioner's bell and the church bell chime in with each other and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers and the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his bloodstained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other, devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. That's not a fun quote to read, is it? It's not a fun quote to hear. And as a white person, it's a really easy quote to dismiss. And let me tell you why. There's some barriers to listening that feel very natural and very rational. Okay, and one of those barriers is not every place was like that. Another barrier is, look, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. That doesn't apply to me. 
Okay, it's fighting against the natural barriers that come into our minds that are wanting with everything that we have to dismiss things like this. Why? Because God help us, none of us want that to have been true. Amen? Okay, but that is part of our history. And if we do any cursory study of Christian sociology in the South, the reason why books are written entitled The Most Segregated Hour is because a lot of our churches, white and black, were rooted in the reality of what used to be. It has profoundly impacted Christian ministry and church, uh, uh, church congregations and the lack of church integration in the modern day South. And all we can do the best of our ability with God's grace is finally posture ourselves to listen and believe and to no longer take a line of living that's shrouded with dismissiveness. Okay, but it's one thing to highlight a quote from history. Let me bring something into view that's uh, more recent. That's even a little more uncomfortable for me to talk about because I don't still fully grasp it. But another, another polarizing movement uh, uh, recently for us uh, uh, here in our country is Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, it's really easy to dismiss that one too. You know how I think I hear it most commonly dismissed is taking the line of thinking, well, don't all lives matter? Well, yes, but I've yet to talk to someone, brother or sister in the Lord, involved in a Black Lives Matter movement or conversation that has denied that all lives matter. Uh, those involved in that movement believe that too. That's not a movement that says only black lives matter. It is intentionally crafted with a purpose of drawing attention to a segment of society that says, we actually don't think our lives matter as much as yours does. And to that, we need to take a posture of listening. Because again, failure to listen can be sin. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that you said. But if we want to be a body of Christ that doesn't just look like one ethnicity, our ears have to be open and the wax of dismissiveness has to be cleaned out. Okay, so Daniel says we have failed to listen in both history past and in the present. And part of our call today is to try to move towards listening in a more thoughtful, Christ-honoring way. Okay, but that's not all that happens in verse 6. And Daniel says, we didn't listen, and that failure to listen was pervasive. And if you look, you'll see every group that was touched by it. He says kings, he says princes, he says fathers, and all the people. It starts with the leadership and it flows down. Because when we fail to listen, we fail to lead. Don't miss that. 
When we fail to listen, we fail to lead. And as a member of majority culture, I can, I think with some integrity, see some waves in which our failure to listen has led to a failing to lead. Let me give you three. Think that as a church, I'm just doing church considered here, that we've been far too comfortable with separate but equal ideologies when it comes to Sunday morning. It's a failure to lead. That, that majority culture Christians have been far too hesitant to give equal seats at the table to minority culture Christian leaders. That's a failure to lead. And we have not led forward with adequate repentance, owning the past and moving forward to a more humble and hopeful future. So a failure to listen will always and necessarily result in a failure to lead. And when we combine those two, so if you take a failure to listen and a failure to lead and we marry them, the result is the impossibility of love. So when we fail to listen and we fail to lead, the result is an impossibility of love. I have no subpoints on that one this morning. Save this. For that result, being a failure to love, the only subpoint is I'm sorry. That's it. I'm sorry. Okay, so where do we go from here? If you've been to Discover Harvest, you know that we do want to and try to hold diversity uh, in high value. How do we, as a church body, move forward? I'm gonna say three things, uh, none of which make me comfortable, but you've promised to be gracious to me. Uh, Maybe you haven't, but you can deal with the Lord in that. Uh, The first one is, The goal and purpose of this sermon, hear me now, is not white shame. Let me take it a step further. I'm not ashamed to be white. I'll tell you why. Scripturally, the Bible says God knit me together in my mother's womb. Which means God colored this with his own fingers. And the same is true for you. Whatever shade of pigmentation that God saw fit to color us with. Does that mean there are things in, in, in my ancestry or lineage that, that shouldn't be uh, repented of or that I don't feel shame for? Of course there are. But look, to put us on a level playing field, that's true of all of us, no matter what people group we come from. Right, we, we could walk all of our cultures backward and fi- find things that we're ashamed that our ancestors did. Okay, so I would want us to move forward knowing this, that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, but the beauty of the tapestry of God is not seen unless we're together and walking forward with one another. Okay, so if your takeaway this morning is 
Jamie just blamed all the world's problems on white people. I'm not trying to. Uh, I'm just trying to acknowledge what's historically true and what I think the scripture teaches. Here's the second thing that I would say is this. To my African-American brothers and sisters or even my Hispanic brothers and sisters or anyone that finds themselves in minority culture, here's what I, as a member of majority culture, am saying to you. Uh, uh, We need help. Hear me now, general calls to action are not helpful. Let me say it again. General calls to action are not helpful. I actually need specifics. I need you to assume that I'm as ignorant of what to do about some of these things as I actually am. And I need you to assume that what's obvious to you is not obvious to me and that's not because I'm trying to be insensitive or neglectful. I just don't know what I don't know. And so if you could receive my posture of not knowing, I would welcome your input to helping educate me. So the general cause to just do something or if you really care, you would do something. I just want you to know that a lot of times I'm standing around going, yes, help me. And I would say, honestly, for a lot of my white brothers and sisters, just so you know, they're in the same spot. There's a great desire to do good and right and just and godly things. Sometimes we just need help seeing what those next steps are. And so we'd ask for help. And then to all of us, I would say this. Could we as a church commit to refuse the narrative of culture and not make blanket statements about any people group? whether it be Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, Indian, whatever it is, the blanket statements do not help. Because just to tell you my own personal interaction with it and why I got off social media altogether last year because I was turning into an angry person, which makes me a bad husband. I'm already average, makes me bad. Uh, uh, And a bad father was, honestly, I got tired of reading social media posts that put me in the same category as well, all white evangelicals think this or believe this or don't care about this. And you know what I can't do in that moment? Well, I can yell at my Twitter, but it doesn't help. Uh, right? It's not the right medium. And so you know what I do? I dig in and I make my purpose to prove to you that I'm not a certain type of white person instead of trying to join hands with you and walk forward to a more unified future. And so I would just ask that, and look, that's God's small, small taste into my life, what it's probably been to be a minority person in America that's felt blanketed with statements for 100 years. Okay, so I'm not equating my experience, but I'm just saying it's hard not to get defensive when blanket statements are being thrown out, and we would do well as a church to refuse that cultural narrative. Okay, I'm gonna end with this. If you ever traveled with me back to where I grew up, and most of you won't, uh, if you did, uh, you'd be going down uh, Ogletree Road in Auburn, Alabama. You'd reach a four-way stop where Ogletree Road intersects Society Hill Road. Now, if you make that right, and we would, 
you'd go 1.2 miles, and 1.2 miles on your left, you would find the driveway for the land and home that I grew up on where my parents still are. Uh, now, as you made that drive for 1.2 miles, I can tell you stories of the land that's on your left and on your right. Now, as you go, when you get just before about, you know, about two-tenths of a mile before you were to reach my, my current house or, my, or, or, or where my parents live, you would see on the left, you would see a white home, beautiful home, not, not uh, elaborate, but a nice white home. And written on that home, you would see two words. Those words would read, Mitchell Plantation. Now, that may mean nothing to you this morning unless I tell you that my grandmother, my dad's mom, is a Mitchell. The Mitchells married the Trussells. Now, if we kept going, we turn my driveway, we get to the house, we park, I can start walking you over these 112 acres and I can take you through the hardwoods of, of eastern Alabama and show you some things that are quite peculiar to find in the middle of the woods. Because as we would walk, you would find these giant, uh, uh, clearly uh, placed and situated piles of rocks that wouldn't naturally form in the middle of the woods. And aside from being a great place for modern day rattlesnake beds, I'd be able to tell you that every pile of rock you see was placed there by the hand of a slave or a poor white sharecropper because those were the rocks that used to be in the field and the fields were cleared. See, this stuff is not theoretical to me. It is real. It is personal. It is visible. And so, lest I be the self-righteous one, I tried to join Daniel in confession this morning by saying... For slavery, for violence, for oppression, for Jim Crow, for the failure to vote, for the lack of education, for the lack of civil rights, for the churches in our city that split because some of the people didn't want to take African American members, and for the need to still have things like Black Lives Matter. I repent and I'm sorry. And with that repentance, I close our time by bringing Daniel 9, verses 18 and 19 into view. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. 
O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Would you pray with me? God, I don't honestly know what to pray except uh, I'm sorry if I did anything that uh, was not pleasing to you this morning. And I pray that you would take what was pleasing to you and shape our futures by it according to your word and according to your heart. In Christ's name I pray, amen.